0: Passport, tickets, shekels. This is Barbara Walsh. Okay,
1: I think I've got everything
0: from my Cullen, County Galway. Okay. It's August 2009, and she's going to Palestine to work on an international human rights program. All
1: well, my family were very shocked, very angry when I when I told them initially that I wanted to go to Palestine. In their minds, it was the centre of Middle Eastern conflict, and they were not pleased. When I did tell them that I was being settled in Bethlehem, uh, their attitude changed. Oh, they imagined Bethlehem as a place of peace, harmony, tranquillity, a place where Christ was born, where only good things could possibly happen. Um where and associated with Christmas and presents and cribs and fluffy angels' wings and their experience of Christmas and children and Christ and all the stories they had been told.
0: Barbara's 57. When her children were small, she was very involved in her local community. Then they grew up. Her husband died. Barbara decided to give up her job. It was time to do something different.
1: I was wondering whether I would tell the whole five of them together and then that I was going to do this, and then I kind of chickened
2: out on that. My name is Willie John Walsh. I just couldn't face telling five of them all at the one time. I'm a fourth out of five children in the family. I live over in London at the moment, where I work as an architect. That that was another thing why it didn't feel yeah. really feel real to me, because you, you yeah. never told me.
1: I think, actually, by the time I had told the first three... Other people three, had told me by then, but... Yeah, the first three, that their reaction was so extreme, yeah. you know, at the time. So, um yeah, I wasn't
3: really keen on their going at the start. And that they felt so anti-my going. Yeah. There were all these notions that... You know, something could happen to her and all that kind of stuff.
1: I just wanted a bit of space before I told anybody else, yeah. you know. And I suppose some part of me knew that it was going to trickle down from them yeah. to to the younger ones.
3: I'm Claire and I'm the youngest in the family. <laughs> um, I first heard off Mom. I think it must have been maybe Christmas last year. And uh, I just wasn't really keen on her going just because, you know, there was a, Four years since Dad had died, so
1: of course nobody told Claire, but I knew that wouldn't happen yeah. because um Claire had a very difficult time after her father died, and indeed both of us had a difficult time for a while, you know, when we were in the process of trying to mend a few fences, you know ourselves you know at that time, and I suppose I myself had a difficult time for a while. I was conscious of very much of the fact that they really did not want me to go.
3: Because I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what was expected over there. You know, as I said, all I heard was bad news on the news. It just felt like, it's just like nothing good could come out of it, you know.
1: And the other part of me felt it was three months, that it was not the end of the world, and that three months goes very quickly and that I would be back. And then I suppose it was about trying to reassure them that the program was well structured, that I wouldn't be taking any in due risks, as my one of my sons says, "Now, Willie, you're not to go into Gaza," like, you know. And uh, I just said, "Well, I've no intention of going in there, even if I could," you know. That I was very mindful of the fact that they had one parent, but there was a strong sense within me that I really had to do this and I had to go.
0: Barbara is doing a Master's in Reconciliation Studies. She's keen to learn how bridges can be built between communities divided by conflict and fear. And her interest is not just academic. My
1: son, Willie John... Um, in 2005 got caught up in the London bombing and um, he was on a train between Liverpool Street and Aldgate. and he there were seven people killed in the carriage that he was in and he ended up in hospital and burnt you know as a result but he recovered you know thankfully from all of that the question I think I was asking myself what is it what is it that makes people plant bombs on trains in, in walls, in places, what is it that makes people so desperately want to be heard that they resort to an extreme form of violence?
0: This is Bethlehem in the so-called occupied territories, or the disputed territories, depending on where you stand in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In response to a rise in Palestinian attacks in 2002, Israel introduced severe restrictions on the movement of Palestinians between the West Bank and Israel. This means that many Palestinians cannot travel to Israel, and those who can are subject to stringent security controls. Well, the programme is called an ecumenical
1: accompaniment programme, which basically is a witness programme for people who experience conflict every day in the West Bank. To date, there have been over 600 ecumenical accompanies that have been there for a period of three months from 2002-2003. to So the most important thing about this programme is that it's not about my contribution, and of course that's important, but the contribution is part of a rolling contribution Every three months, there's a person that will take my place and the person after that that will take their place, so that there's always a continuous presence there in six areas throughout the West Bank.
0: For the next three months, Barbara's job is to monitor the movement of Palestinians through Checkpoint 300 and to report any violations of human rights. Each of us, as part of the work, wears a jacket,
1: and on the jacket there's a cross and there's a dove and there's a piece of wire, right? And that jacket, it doesn't matter who's in the jacket, but as long as the jacket is there, standing at the checkpoint, doing the work. That, and that work is documented and fed into the UN and into the Red Cross. So that gives them on the ground information as to what's happening in six installations throughout the West Bank. And that information gives them first class and first hand information about what life is like there every single day. And then, of course, the programme is supported by the Quakers in the UK and in Ireland. And the Quakers have a long tradition of um, supporting peace initiatives all over the world. And I suppose what I like about the Quakers is, you know, is their idea is that you act and you do in whatever way you can to support people. So it's not about talking about it. You can talk about it, but it's about by your actions that you actually are judged. So I feel sometimes I'm a Quaker at heart. I'm a Catholic with a Quaker spirit.
0: (laughs) So far, about 90 volunteers have come from Britain and Ireland. Before they arrive, they're assigned certain duties and locations. Barbara and her Swiss teammate Daniel have arrived at Checkpoint 300. A steel structure in an eight-metre-high concrete wall between the biblical cities of Bethlehem and Jerusalem.
1: On our first year, we drove on the, on the blue bus, which is the Arab bus from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And there were four of us, four of us in the team, so we got off with all our luggage, which was numerous, And uh, we had to bring the the luggage through the the terminal, big checkpoint 300 in Bethlehem. And we had to get all this luggage through the turnstiles. And I just thought to myself, oh my God, I'm going to have to work here. And the other impression that I had was it was absolutely in the high 30s. It was roasting, hotter than anything I'd ever experienced in my life. And I just thought... How am I going to survive in this heat?
4: It's 4.15 in the morning. We hear dogs barking and the imam is shouting in the tower. Bethlehem is alive.
1: And we are walking.
2: Walking to the checkpoint. Keeping the hope in our
4: hearts that all will be good one day. Because of our work. Just because of our work.
1: we're walking up a steep hill at the moment. Oh. Every morning. So in the distance we can hear the taxis. Come into the checkpoint.
0: Walking up the steep hill, it's very exhausting, but it also wakes you up.
2: So it's like everything to start.
1: Oh, let's take a rest. The smell.
4: Oh, what's that? Oh. What's wrong with that?
5: The lorry burns more oil than
1: oh. fuel. Oh, oh no. <sighs> Have
2: you ever seen something like that? Never. Never. No. In your 57 years, never.
1: No. Thing looks if like it was going to explode. Yeah. <laughs> Now we see the taxis. One, two, three, four, five. Absolutely bombing it down the road to the checkpoint to leave people there. I'm getting near the noise now. Really warm, really dark, A million stars in the sky. More taxis and buses, oh no! Yeah. Yeah. Exhaust! Oh my god. Um, A key part of the work um, that I was involved in really was checkpoint watch. So that involved getting up in the morning, four mornings a week, um, usually at around a quarter to four, and um, walking to the checkpoint. Our apartment was quite near the checkpoint, so it was a 15-minute walk every morning. Um, So when we got there, uh, usually by a quarter past four already, um, taxis, buses, cars services, um, coffee hawkers um, were were all there in anticipation of the crowds that would come and people waiting there. Sometimes people wait there from 3 o'clock in the morning. The checkpoint opens at 5, so they queue up Uh, in order to be there for 5 o'clock so they can get through the checkpoint early in order to get to work in Jerusalem before 7 o'clock. If they're not there before 7, their job is gone in many cases. Jobs are very precious. So my job in the morning um, involved, I usually worked with one other person from the team. Our job really was to monitor the behaviour of the soldiers, um, count the amount of people going through the checkpoint, talk to them, if they could speak English, um, find out really what their experiences was. If they have a problem with permits, we might try and intervene and try and sort it out for them. But I suppose the primary purpose of us being there was to see how many people were going through in the morning, the rate they were going through, and that information then we counted, we documented, and that information was fed in to the UN or into the Red Cross, and then they negotiated higher up with the IDF or with the civil administration about maybe conditions within the checkpoint. Um. Um. It wasn't a pleasant place to be, I found. Um, usually when, you, when you'd arrive there in the morning, there would be perhaps 800 men mainly, mainly construction workers going to work in Jerusalem. Uh, they'd be lining up. Some of them would have already gone into what looked like a cattle crush on the outside uh, that would bring them nearer to the exit point um, in, uh, when the terminal opened at 5 o'clock. So you saw men, quiet, some of them praying, some of them talking, laughing, some of them very um, asleep in the line in the morning. So that's the first sight that you would see. So in the morning I had to walk up by those men and sometimes I said hello, sometimes I was too embarrassed to say hello. And do a preliminary count on the amount of people that were that were waiting there. So that's the first sight that I would see in the morning. So it would be dark. The terminal is in the wall, which is eight meters high. So it's a very grim sight. It's dirty, a lot, untidy, noisy,
2: she used to send just regular emails about the daily life there and I think what shocked me more was the no- the normality that existed there I mean the perception that we have over here is of some place that's in absolute utter turmoil and you know every second of the day but I mean she was the most of mom's emails were focusing on the, the, the normal stuff that were happening during the day but also of course the, the horrendous not the horrendous, that's a bit too hard. Well, I mean, it's the, the conditions on the, on the waiting lines of the people, you know, ordinary people just trying to get to work on a day-to-day basis. It really, it sounds like such a cliché, but it really brought home just the normality. No, the normal people in those kind of circumstances just trying to get through.
0: From Barbara Walsh, Tuesday, August the 18th, 2009... To Willie John, Claire, Janice, Gary and Barbara J. Hello family. The most intense heat of the day is over as I write this. It's been in the mid to high thirties and most of the time I feel like a melting ice cream in this Middle East sun. Sometimes it's so hot I think that I'll never survive in it. But the early mornings and nights make up for it. The nights are wonderful. There's a quarter moon and a million stars in the sky, a lemon tree in the tiny garden and a terrace where I can sit out and look at it all. And the nights are still, except for a pack of dogs now and then and the sound of fireworks in the distance, a sign that someone's getting married and the call of the mosque, which has even now become familiar. I share an apartment with a Lutheran priest from Sweden, a Swiss young man called Daniel, who plays a mean guitar, and a Swedish woman. So far we live quite easily together, so hopefully that'll continue. There's lots of fresh fruit and veg, and an adequate supply of wireless, so what more could you want? Monday morning, the first day of the week, we stood at Checkpoint 300 in Bethlehem, up at a quarter to four in the morning, and worked until eight. This morning, over 2,000 people, mainly men, queued at the checkpoint from as early as four to find a good place in the queue, which enabled them to get to Jerusalem for work at 7am. Mostly construction workers. Some slept in the line, prayed, cursed, laughed, and tried to cope with the hell that it is every morning for them. Daniel and I stood in the main terminal, observing how many were turned away without the correct permit. There are permits for everything here. Construction workers who were turned back because their fingerprints were too worn from work and didn't register on the fingerprint machine and other stuff. Ramadan will start soon, so the pressure on the checkpoints will increase, as will people's frustration. This is all policed by soldiers who look 18 years old and whose attitude varies from being bored, indifferent and barely polite to downright rude. The system, I think, dehumanises everyone in it. Aside from that, I'm beginning to find my way around Bethlehem and Jerusalem in what looks like chaos to me most of the time. But I guess it has its own internal logic. Jerusalem is amazing, the different quarters, the wide array of Armenian, Greek, Roman Catholics, and other Christian churches that make up the politics of the city. It's mind-boggling, and the heat, oh my God. Love always, Mom.
1: I'm counting people as they come out of the wire cage and show their permits to the soldiers. It was a huge push. Near the top of the line in the morning, we, I'd go up and I'd stand near and look at the soldier, uh, soldiers in the booth who would be waiting to open the terminal. And we would wait there until one minute past five. And then we would check and see if the, if the terminal opened on time. So the first thing you would see after that is that when the turnstile opened, hundreds of people flood through. They hold up their permits to the soldier in the booth. Uh, They race across a yard after the first obstacle, of course, I call it, to go to the next process. That's a metal detector hall. That's like the same process as people have when they go to the airport. So they would take off their boots and their belts... They would queue up there and put their stuff in to go through. Sometimes the metal detector hall wouldn't be open. So there is a humanitarian hotline that's been in situ for the past year. So if that wasn't open, we'd ring the humanitarian hotline and say, this isn't open. Tell them to open it. Tell them to open it. There's only one metal detector open. There are hundreds of men in this metal detector hall They will never get through. There are three metal detectors in it. Sometimes none was open, sometimes one was open, and sometimes you'd have to fight for for two to be open. After the metal detector hall, they have to put on their shoes and their belts and they go through the last process. This is called the ID booth. And here you have biometric testing, right, where people put their hand in a biometric machine. That's the shape of their hand. They put a magnetic card that's linked to the biometric machine and it comes up on the PC if they're lucky inside. If it doesn't come up on the PC, they are just told to go back. If their hand doesn't register their face on the PC inside and sometimes they're construction workers, the tops of their hands are worn for construction and sometimes the machine doesn't work. So if I was standing there, then we would tell them maybe to try another machine. To wipe their hands on their trousers and sometimes you saw them doing that and put their hands through their hair sometimes their hand would work in another biometric machine so if they get through that obstacle course they race out the other side sometimes employers that they depend on for their permits are waiting for them sometimes they take the bus to jerusalem which is 10 kilometers down the road so a lot of them at that stage have been up for hours They have to start to work a heavy day in construction and this is just the start of their day and they have to go through the same process coming back in the evening.
0: Even in a conflict zone, there must be births, deaths, marriages. Barbara's curious about everyday life for women here. A couple of months in, as she starts to make friends, she's invited along to a Palestinian wedding. The full range of human emotions are on display. Amir is a young student. She tells what it's like getting to work every day in Jerusalem.
5: For me, it was really nice experience to work in Jerusalem, but in the same time it was awful because I had to go every day early in the morning to the checkpoint, which is not easy. Which is like a big airport where you have there is a lot of security. There are soldiers, very polite. They they feel what we are going through, okay? They they feel that we are suffering to go through a small checkpoint, uh, just two gates, but we are suffering a lot. For example, when I pass, they are like, oh, hello, good morning, maybe they tell me good morning. Maybe they smile, you know, maybe they don't make problem if... Uh, maybe my shoes beeps, they let me go. They see me a uh, girl, uh, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong, so they let me go. But sometimes it's just so, so humiliating, actually, because sometimes they are shouting at me, yelling at me, calling me names in Hebrew, though I don't understand Hebrew. But, you know, I could tell because when the the way of talking, you can tell. What he's telling you sometimes they they close the doors nobody is allowed to pass because maybe they have something or maybe the the soldier is talking on the phone maybe he's uh, talking with another soldier if he's a boy and a girl you know they are sitting there loving each other and we are we have to stay there and wait for them until they finish so it was like this and from the other side palestinian (laughs) you know they come there are a lot of workers of a lot of strangers of course they come from villages around they are not very open-minded maybe and when they see a girl without uh, the veil they are like oh mm, let's (laughs) let's talk with her or let's try to talk with her and of course when they discover that i'm arabic like them they start to say th- things like flirting or something. And sometimes it could be very um, annoying. But sometimes, uh, no, sometimes no. Uh, sometimes they treat us really, really nice. They let all the girls pass all the line. You know, we have to be in line waiting for the turn. And sometimes there are really, really nice men that they don't accept to see girls waiting online like like the other men, okay? Mm-hmm. So they call us, hey, You, come here, come here. And they let us go to the the first line and they let us pass. Then there are big fights between men because why did you leave? Why did you let women pass? We are here since five in the morning Mm. and men, women are coming just like two minutes and passing. So it was like this, you know. We have a very important partner in this work.
1: Um, They're called, the organization is called Mox and Watch and it's a group of Israeli women 300 of them who uh, work in all the checkpoints throughout the West Bank. These are Jewish women who stand on the Jerusalem side of the checkpoint in the morning and they monitor the behavior of soldiers. They help Palestinians. Uh, with permits, um, if they have a problem, and they're very useful in the fact that they can speak both Hebrew and Arabic, so they can speak to the Palestinians in their own language, whereas i can't uh, they understand the permit system and sometimes they intervene f- um, they intervene with the soldiers, and they're also able to they're able to talk to the soldiers in their own language so it's you know, it's it's sort of
4: filing the edges a little mm. bit. It's not really making a very big difference. But I think it's important that there is such thing. You know, like many, many, many times people say to us, you know, the fact that you are there mm. makes a difference in the attitude of the soldiers, which is important in itself. It's not a big thing. Look, even for some Palestinians, the, the sheer fact... Somebody who is Jewish, who is Israeli, who is willing to listen to them, who is willing to try and help them, to say I don't, I'm not sure I'll succeed, but I'll try, who lets them call them in all odd hours and, and just speak to them, which is a, a positive experience. Yes. So that the the encounter with the Israelis is not always
1: a negative experience. Mm-hmm. So, every morning um, we would at if I was at the i d booth behind the i d booth um I would go and I would talk to them so over the course of the time that I was there, I got to know them. The women in Maksumat Mox Mox are quite unusual in that they see things that most Jewish people and Jewish women would not see in, in, in everyday life. So because they're not allowed into the West Bank anymore, um, I was very keen that they would see the checkpoint, the checkpoint 300, from the Bethlehem side. Ordinarily, if you were to drive from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, you could drive in 20 minutes. But because they're Israeli, they had to take the long way around and come in illegally, so it took them an hour and a half to come in. So what did you think of the... I didn't think. I felt
4: shame and humiliation for having anything to do with that installation. It looks like, a I don't know what, a pig stall, a place where they take uh, animals for to be slaughtered, something like that. Yeah. And I think it, it's horrible. I, mean, I don't have any other words to, to define it. What did you expect? Something similar to what there is on this side. On the Jerusalem side? On the Jerusalem
1: side, Yeah. Uh, and what was the worst thing?
4: It think? could have been, you know, smaller with just one passage, two, whatever. Yeah. That's it. It's, it's the worst it
6: can be. Oh. <clears throat> I found it very depressing. And it reminded me of movies I saw about other times that uh, I don't want to mention. Terribly. From the past... Yeah, of course, from the past. So I didn't leave these things, but I saw them in the movies. And it's very depressing. Maybe also because it was dark and there were no people. Maybe when you have people there, it is less depressing. But this Mm. empty thing was... With and all then, those bars there, mm, and dirty and extremely dirty. Uh, very
1: hard. Very you hard. didn't expect that it would be so. No, but no. you had seen pictures before?
6: Yeah, but uh, it's I not the it. same. It's not the same to see pictures and see the the actual place the actual place. place. I, I tell you, maybe when people are there, no,
1: no. <laughs> it's not any better. No, <laughs> maybe worse. Maybe worse, yeah. OK, I Thank can you. imagine it was
4: people, it couldn't be any better.
0: No, no. November 2009. Barbara has finished her three-month stint in Bethlehem. Back in my Cullen, the memory of her time there is still vivid and very sharp in her mind.
1: I often walked up there at half-past four in the morning... Uh, And sometimes I'd be embarrassed to look at people. Um, Cues of men standing there like animals in a cage, like a cattle crush. And sometimes then I'd throw my head back and look at them and talk in the morning. And uh, if there was anything I could do in terms of a permit, or if I could help somebody with a permit, or rap on a booth and see to get the soldier to wake up and open the booth... Um, I would do that so I had conflicting emotions some of the time I felt this is useless what am I doing here this is just what? how can this contribute to anything but um, I remember somebody said to me once in the queue but you are here you are here and it's important that you are here we are suffering but you are here and you see this and you will tell you will go back and you will tell.
3: I think, yeah, it's great that she's that she's um, be speaking vocally about what's happening over there. Because as Willie said, like I have very little knowledge of what's happening, even with this country. You know, I was saying to mom, like I've been in a bubble for four years in college, so to actually be in the real world and hearing what's going on, it's a bit mad and a bit scary. So when mom is speaking about those issues, I think it's great.
1: Indeed, there were many times I felt that it wasn't, it, 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 you know, it was making no long term impact. And how did it feed into policy? And where was it going? And where was all this information going? You know, that was going to make some kind of significant difference, you know. And then I had to remind myself this is an on the ground program. This is something that has been tried and trusted. So shut up. Just do it. Get on with it. And people see this as valuable so therefore you're just part of the chain,
0: get over yourself. Now, almost six months later, Barbara's visit to Palestine has brought the everyday difficulties of living in a conflict zone home to her family and community in Ireland.
2: It sounds harsh to say I can't make any sense of it whatsoever, but, I mean, I can make some sense of it. I don't know what sense I can make out of it, but I remember when she was out there, then feeling proud of her, but that was for the first time and it was only because we could do nothing about it at that point so you might as well feel proud for her.
3: A lot of my friends, they all had their their perfect like family life and I had a mom that wanted to go to Israel. So it was just like, but you know, it was like it was such a big deal at the time because I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what was expected over there. You know, as I said, all I heard was bad news. But really, like, when she went over, and when, like I said, the whole... There was actually, like, a life over there. You know, it wasn't all car bombs and, you know, suicide bombers. And, you know, it wasn't all that. Like, she had a nice apartment where she lived with, you know, three other people. She made friends, and she had, like, internet connection. I thought she was going to be, like, in a fucking shed or something, you know? Like, with sheep around her. <laughs> but but it was it was much better than that, you know, so... While I was there, I met Jews,
1: I met Muslims, I met Christians. And I find it very difficult to understand why these three major religions, in some way, can't agree more, can't find the common things that bind them together. The common things like the search for peace and for justice and for coexistence and for living together. They just need to try harder. What impressed me most while I was there was how ordinary people managed to live their lives, send their children to school, to work in the midst of a situation of conflict. And how organisations, both Israelis and Palestinians, continue to meet every day and every week to keep the lines of communication open. And through that, to be able to create the conditions for peace.